Hey folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News, where we give you just that news, no speculation, facts, no opinion, uh, and no indoctrination. We want you to make up your own mind, including with this podcast. So today, we've got a special guest. We have a speaker in the house. Yes, former House Speaker Newt Gingrich joins us from Rome where he and his wife, Callista, the ambassador to the Vatican, have been locked down for seven straight weeks uh, as the coronavirus ran through Italy. He has some encouraging reports that things are getting better in our ally Italy. Uh, And he's got some really strong thoughts about how we're going to reopen our economy, what's going to happen in the election, and most importantly, how we're going to win the economic war with China for economic supremacy of the world. Some big, big thoughts, big interview, big news with our good friend, Newt Gingrich. Uh, But first, uh, we're going to also have a discussion about some new developments in the Russia case. And uh, you're going to hear about a lab called Fort Detrick. That's right. It hasn't been in the news for a long time, maybe since the famous or infamous anthrax attacks uh, attacks two decades ago. But uh, there's something good brewing in Fort Detrick, a possible solution to coronavirus. And we're going to tell you what that is how America's premier biodefense lab may be on to a very important ingredient in uh, fighting COVID-19. All right, we're going to go to a quick commercial break, uh, get a word in from our sponsors and advertisers, the great people that support the show, and we'll be right back. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. Remember to support our amazing sponsors and advertisers. They make this radio show possible. They make just the news possible. Without them, we couldn't do the investigative reporting, the transparent news reporting, the dig-in tool that you all have come to love on just the news. So please support them any way you can. I'm deeply grateful for their support and for the extraordinary contributions they're making to the American economy, even in the middle of this pandemic. All right. Um, Speaking of the pandemic, I have a story out this morning uh, that asks the question, could the military's secretive but premier biodefense lab known as Fort Detrick hold the key to a coronavirus treatment? 
And uh, this is a very exciting story. First, let's give everybody a little history lesson on what Fort Detrick is. It was when America did create biological weapons back in the 40s, 50s, 60s. Uh, it was the place <clears throat> where our bioweapons program was centered. It's in Frederick, Maryland, Western Maryland, about an hour, hour and a half away from Washington, D.C., so in the late 60s and early 70s, when we ended our bioweapons program and we signed a global treaty not to engage in biological weapons, the uh, Fort Detrick lab was turned into something different. It became our biodefenses lab so that if an enemy did unleash intentionally or unintentionally a biological weapon, or if just a uh, horrible pathogen got into the human population like coronavirus just did, we would have a premier place to research, protect our troops, protect our national security infrastructure, and protect our civilians. So for much of the last, uh, from between the 70s and early 2000s, it really wasn't on anyone's radar. It was uh, very secretive, very quiet, doing very important, respected work. It's a lean, mean fighting machine, small group of people, but some of the best researchers in the world, including a, a guy named Dr. John Dye that we're going to talk about in a second. But uh, Fort Detrick did jettison itself into the news after 9-11, after the anthrax tax. If you remember, right after the terrorists struck, there were a series of mail uh, lettered, mailed letters that were sent to members of the media and a few members of Congress that were laced with the deadly power powder anthrax, um, a biological weapon. And the FBI originally assumed that that anthrax came out of Fort Detrick, and they focused on a man named Stephen Hatfield. Uh, and he ultimately became the Richard Jewell of the anthrax investigation. The FBI terrorized him, turned his life upside down, and it turns out they had the wrong guy. They ultimately cleared Dr. Hatfield, who had been one of our premier biodefense uh, researchers in, the, in our country before his name got besmirched. And then the FBI pivoted to a second man at, the, uh, at Fort Detrick named Dr. Bruce Ivins, and they were closing in on him as their premier suspect when he committed suicide in 2007-2008 timeframe, uh, and the FBI ultimately closed down the investigation saying our best guess is that Dr. Ivins, not Dr. Hatfield, was the perpetrator of the anthrax attacks. Now, that conclusion has come under some criticism in some corners, particularly the scientific evidence that the FBI used to make that conclusion, but uh, after that, Fort Detrick fell off the the radar for a long time. But why is it important today? Well, they're doing some of the most important research on some of the most vexing pathogens, vexing human diseases, infectious diseases in the world. They do so because the military has a very keen interest in fighting infectious diseases and fighting particularly enveloped viruses. Enve enveloped viruses are things like Ebola. That's pretty scary. Marburg virus. That's scary. And, and now COVID-19, which we've seen how scary that is as it swept across our country and killed tens of thousands. Um, envelope viruses are scary because they basically disguise their pathogens for a while until they get your body pretty infected and your body is late to try to fight the infection. And that's why these viruses can be lethal and so um, harmful to the human body. So back in 2016-17, the uh, Fort Detrick Lab, under the direction of its uh, fantastic uh, bio-researcher, Dr. John Dye, they uh, began a research study on a natural uh, element. It's called um, oleandrin, and it's extracted. It's an extract from 
the flower that you can find in gardens and grasses around the United States called oleander. Oleander is probably famous because if your dog eats too much of it, he can get sick because it does have some poisons in it. Um, uh, it's toxic uh, when, when eaten. But oleandrin had begun to show some promise in cancer studies and the way that it was helping cancer patients specifically to fight the cancer cells uh, had a very similar theory or uh, idea for how bio researchers trying to defeat envelope viruses would attack the virus. And so uh, they, in 2016, 2017, did a uh, study on oleandrin, the extract from this flower, alongside the owner of the uh, patent for this uh, company, uh, for this uh, compound, uh, which is called uh, Phoenix Biotechnology out of San Antonio, Texas. And what they found was dramatic. Hasn't got a lot of attention, but in medical circles, people know about this very important uh, test. What they found out was uh, oleandrin would kill Ebola and Marburg viruses in Petri dish. Very effective. The final results were this is very, very promising, not only in a fight against Ebola or Marburg, which are two horrific viruses, but possibly for the future of other enveloped viruses that might emerge. The lab did some great work and the next round for the NIH and other people to take this research and start advancing it would be to put it into human trials. Well, uh, a few weeks ago, the COVID-19 outbreak got bad and Fort Dietrich rushed into action very quickly and they have an ongoing test they confirmed to me. Dr. John Dye confirms to me directly at justthenews.com. You can read the story there that they have an ongoing test to see if COVID-19 uh, is similarly affected by oleandrin. If oleandrin can be uh, very effective in doing what it did to Ebola and Marburg viruses, I'm told the early results are very promising and that this could be, turn out to be a very big, important development out of, the, uh, out of one of our great premier labs, Fort Detrick and the U.S. Military Biodefense Lab. So let's keep an eye on this. Uh, there's a lot of enthusiasm. I talked to the owner, Andrew Whitney, or the chief executive of um, Phoenix Biotechnology. He says there's another study in Texas that's also showing similar results. And here's the good news. If we can get it past the in vitro tests, you know, the Petri dish tests, if we can get it into human trials and it's still working, just like it's working on cancer and just like it's had some efficacy against Ebola, uh, it may be able to be produced in mass quantities very quickly in the United States and try to give doctors some sort of capability uh, six months, a year, year and a half from now. That's very important. And uh, if it does, we'll have Dr. John Dye and the great people at the Fort Detrick Bio defenses lab to thank for this uh, very important discovery. Let's keep an eye on this one. It's early. It can go many different ways, but the early thinking is in the cancer community, oleandrin is really gaining popularity in the uh, Marburg uh, Ebola virus fight. Uh, the, the lab's findings are now widely accepted. This is a big deal. And finally, if we can find it on COVID, it will advance the importance of this medicine, this treatment, this natural compound even more. Um, all right, we're going to get to Newt Gingrich in just a second. I just want to take a couple of minutes to address something that a lot of listeners and readers of Just the News have been asking, which is, what's up with Senator Richard Burr and the Senate Intelligence Committee? How could he come to the conclusion he came to earlier this week when his committee put out a report saying the CIA and the intelligence community did a good job assessing the Russia uh, intrusions on the 2016 election. Uh, so let me let me try to sort this out, because um, on most things, Devin Nunez and the House Republicans and on uh, Senate Republicans and Mark Warner and Richard Burr, Democrat Republican 
chairman, vice chairman of the Senate Intel Committee, we all agree the intelligence community got most of the Russia intrusions right. There was a hacking operation run by the Russians. There was a Facebook operation run by the Russians. Um, but the one place where there is massive disagreement is that the intelligence community and Senator Richard Burr believe that there's also evidence that Russia's intentions in doing the things it did in 2016 were to help Donald Trump, Trump win the election and uh, Hillary Clinton lose the election. Now, uh, you all heard yesterday from uh, former CIA station chief in Moscow, Dan Hoffman. You know what he thinks. He thinks that conclusion is wrong. Well, uh, Richard Burr and the Senate Intelligence Committee just put out a conclusion or a report earlier this week saying they think the conclusion is right. Weird that the frontline expert that the CIA had in Moscow thinks it's wrong, but the Senate still thinks it's right. So there's a disagreement between what I would call the Devin Nunez camp and the Richard Burr camp. Uh, here's, the, here's my refereeing from the reporting and factual information that I have. The opinion that Russia was trying to help uh, Trump had a lot of support uh, back in 1617 when we were early in the Russia counterintelligence investigation. But it is clear now from the declassifications we've talked about on this very podcast and, on, and certainly had big, important breaking stories on the Just the News site that uh, a new body of evidence is coming out. And it calls into question, just like Dan Hoffman told you yesterday, it calls into question Richard Burr's assessment and the intelligence community's assessment. There's a growing number of people that are calling for this one part, very small part, but important part of the intelligence community assessment on Russia interference in the 2016 election to be reevaluated. And here's why. Let's just talk through for a second what we now know from all of our reporting and our past discussions together. If as the intelligence community ultimately determined in 17 and 18 that uh, Russia found out about Christopher Steele's project, fed him disinformation, and that disinformation was negative or pejorative to Donald Trump, meaning it was designed to hurt Donald Trump, and they fed it to his Democratic opponent through the person of his opposition, of Hillary Clinton's opposition researcher, Christopher Steele, it cuts against the idea that Russia wanted Donald Trump to uh, win the election. You wouldn't try to hurt the guy you were trying to help the election win, uh, win the election. So this body of evidence, which is now quite substantial, uh, there are two or three pieces of information that the community intelligence community now assesses Steele got from Russian intelligence, and it was designed to be disinformation. In that scenario, there is a strong reason to call into question not only Richard Burr's recent report, but the earlier intelligence community assessment. This is going to be resolved when a DNI, either the current acting one, Rick Grinnell, or the new one uh, coming in in a couple of months, John Ratcliffe, uh, if they decide to go back, reopen this and bring a larger component of the intelligence community together. Remember the Obama assessment delivered on January 5th, 2017, just before uh, Trump took office was rushed. It was done very quickly. It didn't include the entire intelligence community. There was controversy. And of course, it was colored by the prevailing narrative that, oh my gosh, there's going to be a scandal. And Donald Trump was colluding with Vladimir Putin to uh, hijack the 2016 election. We now know collusion did not happen. And the hysteria and Hyperion is all gone. And now I think it's time for the intelligence community to take a look back at all the evidence that emerged since 
of the 2016, early 2017 timeframe to show one, how the narrative was wrong, two, uh, how emerging evidence contradicted or showed uh, more likely that what Russia was doing was what Dan Hoffman told us yesterday. They were trying to just meddle in our election and create doubt about democracy. As Dan Hoffman said, Russians hate uh, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton equally. They weren't trying to help one or the other win. They just wanted America to fight with each other and to cast out on the great institution that democracy is. So keep that in mind. And if I were you, I'd watch to see if the Trump administration and its new leadership at ODNI, the Office of Director of National Intelligence, whether they call for and begin a new assessment process. That will be very important, and it will maybe help ultimately referee and decide who was right. Was it Richard Burr or was it Devin Nunez? All right, somebody who's right often is joining us next. And when I mean right, I also mean conservative. Um, the incredible former House Speaker Newt Gingrich, one-on-one -on -one exclusive interview with John Solomon reports in Just the News right after the commercial break. Don't go away. You do not want to miss this interview. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, we have joining us from Rome, uh, Speaker Newt Gingrich. Uh, Newt, welcome to the show. Well, it's great to be with you. And, uh, you know, things are interesting in Rome and things are interesting in the United States. They are indeed. In fact, could you give us a quick update because Italy's been ground zero even before the United States got struck. Uh, what has it been like there and are you seeing some improvement? Well, the Italians had bad luck because there are about 100,000 Chinese who live in northern Italy. And they, out of political correctness, they kept open the three flights a week from China uh, several weeks after it was obvious that there was an epidemic. So they were literally flying the disease into northern Italy. It finally got so out of hand that they had to close the whole country down. So for the last seven weeks, you could go to a grocery store, a pharmacy, or a gas station. No place else. No, no, nothing else is open. If you um, wow. were on the street without an appropriate reason, you could be fined um, $3,200. And uh, we have, Chris and I have been here, as you know, Chris is the ambassador to the Vatican. So yes. we've been here. Uh, she's running her Vatican, her, her embassy, rather, uh, from uh, basically uh, go to meetings, Skype, uh, Zoom, you name it. And they're all working together, but it's, it's all done virtually. Uh, we've seen a steady drop in the number of people in intensive care units for 18 straight days. Uh, we've almost but not quite leveled off in new cases. Uh, we're down to about 1.6% increase per overnight, uh, but it's still got to get down below that. But um, I think that we're probably two to four weeks away from beginning to significantly open up. What an amazing time. And uh, you, you're a student of history. Uh, there, there's no there's no way we could have prepared uh, for the sort of magnitude of what struck so quickly, is there? Well, I think the closest analogy is probably World War II and that this is a, a worldwide phenomenon. And in the United States, there's a nationwide mobilization. 
But the, the truth is, and I, I wrote a, an article about that this, this week, um, the Chinese did an enormous disservice to the entire world because uh, the University of Southampton estimated that if the Chinese had told us what was going on, 95% of the people who died would still be alive, and we would have tens of trillions of dollars of economic activity still underway. So the, the degree to which the Chinese made this massively worse by lying to the world uh, is, is something we have got to dig into and be aware of. And as you look at it, I mean, you, you always are a, a problem solver. You're always creating solutions to the issue at hand. How is America going to deal with China, not only in, in understanding what went wrong here, but changing the balance of power between us when it comes to economics and, and supply chain reliance? Do you see a buy America or buy in the free world movement that comes out of this? Yeah, I think, first of all, uh, that Larry Kudlow is right, and we need to go to 100% expensing so companies can write off their investments in one year. Uh, we need to create incentives for companies to pull out of China and either come back home, insource it to the United States, or, or move it to a third world country for lower cost. But I'd much rather have it made in Mexico than made in China. Uh, I think we also have to recognize that this is a permanent, very long-term competition, and we have to take steps accordingly. And I think that the um, reality is that this is going to be a very difficult, um, very significant competition. They're very serious people. Uh, they come from a 5,000-year-old civilization. They're a billion, 300 million Chinese, and nobody should take this lightly. This is a much greater challenge than the Soviet Union was in the Cold War. So um, I think that we are moving towards understanding that. I think the president's actions recently have been helpful in that direction. And I, I just did a paper in which I called for the Chinese being forced to pay reparations. After the Lockerbie uh, airplane was blown up, uh, ultimately families got about $8 million in compensation that would probably be about 13 million in, in current dollars. Uh, and I think you look at everybody on the planet who has been killed because of Chinese dishonesty, and then you look at all the economic damage, uh, the Chinese should be made to pay for this. This is, this is not one of those, oh, gee, I'm really sorry you ruined everything kind of moments. I think we've got to think about how are we going to compel them uh, to bear their share of the burden, which is overwhelming. And do you see some mechanisms, are there world courts, American courts, uh, trade pressure, uh, military pressure? What, what are the levers that we pull? Well, first of all, we, we have the leverage of the American courts. Second, we have the potential leverage of, of putting uh, all of their assets in escrow, uh, something we've done to the right. Iranians, we've done to the Cubans. Uh, I think um, we also have the potential to, to establish a very severe tariff uh, based on um, Chinese damages and not take the tariff down until it's actually paid the cost. So there, there are a number of steps we can take. Uh, the Japanese have adopted a policy. They are actually, they put aside two or three billion dollars just to help companies get out of China. And so I think you're gonna see a lot more stuff like that as people come to realize uh, how, un, how unreliable and how dangerous uh, the Chinese dictatorship is. And, you know, for the last two decades since MFN became permanent and uh, China you know, became a member of the, the world trading community, uh, the American sentiment has predominantly been that there's not a lot of threat from China and uh, and they're a good trade partner. And, yeah, we've got a deficit. But 
Do you think American sentiments have changed or are changing as a result of this experience that people realize what you've been talking about for a long time, that China is, you know, the single largest economic threat to our supremacy? Well, I wrote a book last fall called uh, Trump versus China. Right. And I wrote it because I was one of those people who thought that if they got into the World Trade Organization, if they learned uh, more about the rule of law, that they would, in fact, become more of a normal nation. It's clear that all of us who thought that were wrong, that we are dealing with a civilization operating on very different principles than our own, and that uh, we're going to be in this uh, competition and we better learn how to win at it or we're going to be destroyed. And so I think if you watch and if you look at the polling numbers, uh, the last two months, the American people have really moved uh, very dramatically towards blaming the Chinese, uh, taking seriously the threat of the dictatorship. Uh, and I think in that sense, there's, there's almost a profound underlying uh, transition underway. Yeah, that's uh, we're seeing that in our polling at Just the News, and and um, uh, it seems the education process got quite a quite an injection when this occurred. Uh, I mean, the president's been talking about this for a couple of years, as as Navarro and and um, and Michael Pillsbury, but uh, this one, uh, moment seems to have really heightened uh, the awareness of the competition we're in and the Chinese true intentions in in trying to supplant us as the world superpower. What? Um, the, you talked about the long road ahead in Italy, and of course that means we have a long road ahead here in, in the United States. What do you see are the proper steps to get America back on its feet? You seem to be happy where we're, we're headed, but what, what's it going to take to get America back to where we were? Well, I, I think, first of all, that the uh, reality that we have, I think, exactly the right decision by the president to you know, give the governors the opportunity to experiment and to, to develop we have 50 states. This is much too big a country to try to run from uh, some kind of um, Washington-based bureaucracy. And uh, different states are going to move at a different speed. Uh, I think that's um, really uh, how we should approach this. And so I think that we will see, um, you know, Georgia, for example, is going to be very aggressive uh, because that's the nature of Governor Kemp. Other states are going to be very cautious. And what I think will happen is over the next six weeks, uh, different states will make mistakes, different states will do well. Uh, and in that process, you will start to see um, a, a lessons learned grow pretty rapidly of what does work, what doesn't work, how you can do it safely. But, you know, you can't keep the country locked down for very long. It's not, it's both psychologically impossible, but it's financially impossible. Right. And so, Getting us finding a road back to being healthy while uh, physically while being healthy economically is an extraordinarily important challenge, and I think the president right now is approaching it in exactly the right way. Now you were you were speaker at a time when uh, America achieved something it hadn't done for a long time, which is to get back to a balanced budget and actually have a surplus for a while. We are now trillions and trillions and trillions of in debt just this year because of the emergency need. What do you think of the short-term spending to keep us afloat? Are you comfortable with that? And then what do we do after we come out of this and the economy gets back to where it was to start to address the debt issues that, that we've accumulated? Yeah, I, I, I want to draw divide that into two parts. I mean, when we fought World War II or when we fought the Civil War, or when we fought World War I, you know, we ran up a big debt. Right. And I think this is a war. This is a genuine war uh, with very substantial casualties. 
So winning the war comes first. Once we have won the war and once we have the economy back up and running, I think we need to look at how, to, how do we transition further towards back towards a balanced budget. Uh, you were right earlier. The only four consecutive balanced budgets in your lifetime uh, came from my speakership. Yeah. So I, I think actually I have a pretty good idea how to do this. But I can also tell you that's going to take, uh, you know, you could do it over, I'm guessing, a 10-year period. You couldn't do it over a year. And so you got to, I always tell people, it's balancing the budget requires being smart, not being cheap. And so you'd have to really think about uh, what is the nature of what we want to do. But I think we're also going to discover uh, from, for example, all of the classes that are being taught uh, online right now, <clears throat> Maybe we don't need to spend quite as much on higher education. Maybe we don't need to build lots of, and spend lots of money on buildings that we've been spending. Uh, maybe we don't need to have students who are borrowing huge amounts of money that burden them for the next 20 or 30 years. I mean, there are, there are a lot of lessons to come out of this. And I think if we do it right, uh, we shouldn't plan just to get back to where we were. We should plan to create a, a bigger, better, a leaner, more prosperous, uh, more job-creating country, uh, which combined with going to the moon and Mars, literally the sky's the limit. And uh, we should be confident that Americans are capable of defeating the virus and renewing freedom and renewing economic growth. It's um, there's a little fun statistic I just pulled out today because we're working on a story. And, and last year, there, there's a new audit out in the Social Security Fund. But last year, for the first time in a long time, the reserves went up in Social Security, not not nearly as enough as they need to to cover the long term concerns. But the Trump economy actually generated revenue that started to pay into places where we were upside down. Do you see us getting back to the economic growth pattern that we were in before before March 1st? And, and what will it take to get us there? Well, I think if Trump gets reelected, I suspect that by June of next year, we will be back up pretty close to where we were. Uh, and I think we'll then grow from there. We're not going to stop. Right. Uh, we have new technologies. We have new breakthroughs. We have all sorts of things going on that are very exciting. Uh, I, every day I turn around, I find... Uh, things that are being developed that are just unbelievably exciting and interesting. And, um, you know, I think that that's, that's something that uh, we should all look forward to with great pride, that this is a country which has invented itself uh, from the very beginning, or the only country that wrote a patent office into our Constitution, because the Founding Fathers were so dedicated to intellectual property rights and to encouraging people to be inventive. And I think that's going to continue. And I think with, with somebody like Trump, who cuts the regulations, shrinks the bureaucracy, lowers the taxes to give people incentives. Um, there's no reason to think we can't get back to a full employment economy, as you pointed out. And as, that, as, as we get a full employment economy, uh, then wages start to go up. As wages start to go up, people pay more in taxes because they're better off. And all of a sudden, you just solved your Social Security problem for another generation. Yeah, it is remarkable. A lot of people overlook that number, but it was one of the first times we saw such a bump in, in into the contributions, which means the economy was really doing well. And it shows what prosperity can bring. Uh, one last question for you, because I know uh, you, you're busy and have to get back to work there. But as you look out over the horizon, one of the things that Americans are talking about a lot today is big government had a big fail here, right? You see the missteps of the CDC. You see the failure of the NIH to prepare for coronavirus, even though there were 15 years of warnings. 
What will we learn about big government and bureaucracy? And is there an opportunity to reform, particularly the big science side of government in the aftermath of this? Yeah, look, I, I think that the the Trump approach and, and uh, Chris DeMuth at the Hudson Institute wrote a great piece in the Wall Street Journal about this the other day. He did. Where he said, this is the first time we have seen a crisis in which the federal government has deliberately decentralized and gotten power out of Washington. You know, think about that. That's really brilliant. Yes. And I think that what you're going to see is uh, if the if the president the president is learning a lot of lessons. Uh, he did a great job of bringing in the private sector. Most of the real breakthroughs right now are in the private sector. Uh, one of his great strengths has been cutting through the bureaucracy, particularly at the Food and Drug Administration. Yes. And I have a hunch that he's learned a great deal about uh, the bureaucracies that don't work. So uh, I think that uh, you will see. If he gets reelected, and particularly if we can pick the House up, I think you will see a decade of reform uh, rolled into one year, and, and that year is 2021. And we'll come out of that year uh, much more lean government, much more decentralized, much more reliance on entrepreneurial breakthroughs. And that will make us, once again, uh, the most dynamic and most exciting country in the world. And how do you like the election? What, what do you, as you look at this now, how are Republicans and Democrats poised to to go into the fall? Well, I think I think that uh, the, the you know, if the president continues to uh, defeat the virus, and if the president this summer starts to relaunch the economy, I think he'll be win, win by a big margin. If he does, if if he's floundering, then I think because Joe Biden is both so left wing and so weak. It'll still be a remarkably close election, and I think Trump could still win it. But uh, he'll win it much easier if everybody thinks, you know, a little bit like Franklin Roosevelt in World War II. If your doctor defeat the virus and doctor regrow the economy, it gets to be a lot easier to win the election. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And do you like the lineup that Republicans have for Senate and House races? How taking the House back is a big you know, agenda, but it's a hard fight. I do think that we're in better shape than people think we are. And I think particularly... Uh, as the Democrats find it inevitably necessary to defend China uh, and, and that, that uh, you know, and to attack Trump on all, almost everything. Just the video of them complaining when he stopped the travel from China and them saying it wasn't necessary and it's just a sign he's a racist and so forth. You look back at that and you say, okay, you really think you'd have been better off with Joe Biden? Uh, and I think whether you're talking about um, the, defeating the virus or creating jobs, you you hold those two guys up side by side. There isn't much that Biden wins on those grounds. Yeah, that's a good point. There were a lot of attack ads made that we don't know yet because they, we were going through real life history. But uh, there's going to be a chance to go back and show the difference in approach that in February, March uh, between the parties. So, Mr. Speaker, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. We wish you and uh, the ambassador well in uh, Italy and hope to see you soon back here on the shores of America. Great. Thank you, sir. Well, I look forward to it, and we look forward to coming home. All righty. We look forward to it, too. Thank you. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports. What a week we've had. Dan Hoffman, a tremendous guest, former CIA uh, station chief in Moscow with a lot of provocative news about John Brennan, about Russia collusion, about failures in the intelligence community, about North Korea. And uh, China, really a great guest. We heard from the head of the largest hotel association about what's going to have to happen to keep America's hotel association afloat. And then today, the very special guest, Newt Gingrich, former Speaker of the House, 
coming in from Rome, giving us insights on everything from the coronavirus to China to the election. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoy what we're doing every day on justthenews.com. Please come back next week. Another round of big guests, a lot of another round of big news. Uh, and until then, please be safe. Enjoy your families. Take care of that health. Abide by that social distancing and uh, enjoy a beautiful weekend. We'll be back with you next week.